You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew from Ga- into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. You may be seated. In this passage, Matthew, through the power and direction of the Holy Spirit, he describes to us scenes that are so momentous and astounding, and yet some that are quite ordinary. We could either miss the utter significance and simply read on, or we could be touched. Maybe even our consciences pricked. And perhaps we could even be moved to the core of our being. And only by God's grace would we see the light. The light that has come into the darkness, the darkness of the world to be sure, but the light that has come into the darkness of our very own hearts. Why so dramatic? Well, As has been said, especially growing up in this region, with many of us being part not just of a Christian culture, but being part of an evangelical church culture, many of us are familiar with the Bible. And with that certain level of familiarity, sometimes we do miss the significance of what the writer, in this case Matthew, is actually saying. We could even miss, dare I say, the 
wonder of the moments that Matthew is captured for us in his gospel. And sometimes we want to get to this theological truth. We want to get to this certain conclusion. All the while we miss the grace of the truth that brings us to the very thing that Jesus Christ is calling us to. To repent. To repent. So by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, my prayer, church, my prayer for each and every one of us here this morning is that in this passage, we would see the light that is Jesus and we would repent and we would walk in the obedience of faith to the light that is Jesus. So to help us this morning, this passage is organized into three parts. First, it's the great light, which we'll see in verses 12 through 17. The great light. Second, follow the light in verses 18 through 22. And third, the power of the light in verses 23 through 25. But even as we move through each of these movements, Matthew is also wanting us to see the one thing about Jesus that is unmistakable about him. And it is to this one thing that we must respond. We'll see this as we move through the passages. So our first part here, the great light. See here, take a look here in verse 12. Verses 12 through 17, we have a critical transition. A shifting from the ministry of John the Baptist, having him him having prepared the way of the Lord, to the Lord Jesus himself having been prepared through the waters of baptism out of obedience to the Father, to the testing in the wilderness as we learned last week. And for those of you who haven't heard, please do so. Pastor Alec preached last week on the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And if you get a chance to hear that message, by God's grace, you will be nourished. But you recall that in the wilderness... Jesus had endured a series of temptations that were, they were more real and deeper on every level. Deeper than any one of us could have even begun to endure. In fact, biblical counselor and author Deepak Reju, he has said that the force of the temptations were beyond anything we have ever experienced because we give in to temptation. We sin. You see, once we sin, once we give in to that temptation, the force of that temptation stops. But with Jesus, he never gave in. And because he never gave in, the allure and the depth, indeed the force of the temptations were stronger, and yet Christ, being a faithful son, endured. He endured it, and he was nourished, and he was sustained by trusting in the very word of God. I mention that because now, because he was able to do that as the faithful son, he exits the wilderness because he is qualified. He's qualified now to continue on the mission for which he was sent. And so Jesus begins his ministry 
Now, as we see what constitutes the beginning of his ministry, it's significant for us to see where he began his ministry. So take a look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15 the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what is Matthew saying by giving us all these place names? Capernaum by the sea. Sounds like a resort, huh? Zebulun, Naphtali, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What does it all mean? A little bit of history. Give us some background here. We want to see what this region was like. So the Sea of Galilee, that's the north. If you look at the map at the back of your Bible, that's a little body of water to the north. The Sea of Galilee and the villages and towns surrounding it, they were part of a thriving trade route from the Mediterranean to other parts east of Israel. That's beyond the Jordan. And so this area, this region, it benefited not just from the trade and the commerce, but also an exchange of ideas. And at the same time, they were subject to invasion, most notably by Assyria a few centuries earlier. And there the northern tribes of Israel, still known as Israel, those were ten tribes, they were split from the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And that was then known as Judah. So it was this historical split and the Gentile influence coupled with the fact that it was so far removed from Jerusalem, the true center of worship, at least in the eyes of those religious leaders in Matthew's time, and then it led to Galilee of the Gentiles, Capernaum, and all the regions I just mentioned to be viewed as, listen, less than. They were viewed as less than. They were viewed in some ways, yes, as Jews, but less orthodox. They were viewed as contaminated with the impurities of Greek philosophies and the Gentile lifestyle. Now, one does not need to be a Gentile or a non-Jew to be separated from God. We found that out in Genesis in the Garden, where in the perfection of God's creation in the stunning beauty and provision in the Garden of Eden, where even the very presence of God was, it was Adam and Eve that, given the choice to rule in God's kingdom, they chose that which was less than. They chose to sin. And through Adam's fall, so do we. They chose an outright rebellion against God and his goodness, and they chose a lesser kingdom that brought distortion and destruction, death, and darkness. And that's what marked the region around Galilee. That's what Galilee was like. Now, not all was outright evil and bad. In fact, Jesus was quite strategic in having Capernaum as his base of operations. You see, by God's common grace... 
there was a certain level of thriving. Life was indeed happening. And Josephus, the historian, he said this, that the Galileans were fond of innovation. By nature, they were disposed to change, and they were also tough and courageous, and that formed a marvelous seedbed for the gospel. But left to themselves, left to themselves, without the intervention of God breaking through, their end was clear. Darkness reigned and manifested itself in all kinds of ways, both in the physical and, most critically, in the spiritual realm. Now, how about us? Let's do a little comparison here. We're also part of a thriving trade route. Uh, Minutes away, Long Beach, LA, L.A. port, it's the busiest port in the U.S. and one of the busiest in, in the world. The economy, just in Orange County alone, of which you guys are all a part, is larger than many countries. If you were to compare the economy of Southern California to Australia, ours is larger. That's an entire continent. And here in Southern, Southern California, our economy is larger. And we're fond of innovation. We're a center for fashion. We're the epicenter of all things surf and skateboarding. We know this. 75% of all the skateboards uh, manufactured in the U.S. are manufactured here in Costa Mesa. Wear that with a badge of pride. <laughs> <laughs> and just here with a 5 and the 405 meet, some of us know it as the El Toro Y back in the day. That's also being billed as the Techno Coast to rival Silicon Valley. And then our county is a regional powerhouse for housing as well as automotive design. And those are two engines, pardon the pun, that literally drive our economy. And the light and large part is based here in Orange County. Food. You don't have to go far to find any type of cuisine. I would say that we have easily the best of everything culinary. The opportunities for leisure, entertainment, recreation are why people from all over the world come here. Do they not? We live in vacation land. And here's the closer. Our weather is so good, we're willing to pay for it. Right? But as to that first question, how about us? Other than the economic and the cultural parallels with Galilee of the Gentiles, does the distortion and the death, does the destruction and the darkness that marked Galilee, is that something that characterizes us? Allow me to get personal. What happens when we don't get what we want? I guess it depends if we answer honestly, but we get conflict, do we not? Conflict that leads to that destruction, that leads to that darkness. And what do I mean? Well, each of us, we have our own kingdom, so to speak. We have our own sense of sovereignty. And when the walls of our kingdom are breached, we have the borders of our personal sovereignty crossed, we have 
conflict. And this happens. This happens in our friendships. This happens in our relationships at work. And often this happens in the relationships at our home and in our marriages. We desire everything from the recognition to who we think we are, what we think we deserve. And that's because the kingdom we think that we have built is built on things of the world, things that are temporal, things that appeal to our sense of well-being. It's built on what we think we deserve because it will satisfy me. Why do you think Satan tempted Jesus with the glory of all the kingdoms of the world? Because in the temporal, it is glorious. It is glorious. But things that are manifested in the physical, things that we think will satisfy us in our inner being, it's so distorted. And it's dark. And it's deceptive. And in short, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Things of the world, things that are, yes, indeed good, things, even blessings, can become more important than God. The safety of family, a good marriage, the achievement of financial security, the recognition of accomplishment, accomplishment in the world of academia, Accomplishment at work, accomplishment even relationally, and even in the world of ministry. Yes, that's alive and well. Things that are meant to serve one another in this world, we in turn begin to serve them. So even as we begin with good intentions, church, to provide for ourselves and our families, to help others, we, de- we develop a deceptive Self-reliance. And that self-reliance leads to a desire for more because then we've developed a discontent. And again, because temporal things by their very nature never fully satisfy. And that passion for satisfaction in lesser things, it builds a foundation on our abilities which will soon fail. Our love for God is then eroded by our love for the world and the love for ourselves. Idolatry. It snuffs out the light and it brings darkness. James 4, chapter 1. James 4, chapter 1 says... What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. (laughs) Hold on a second, Pastor Hans. I'm not a murderer. That's not me. Well, Jesus has something to say about that in the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll see that next week, Lord willing. He continues, James does. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Furthermore, Jesus himself says this to us, his church, in Revelation 3, 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Apart from Christ, there is darkness that reigns. And yet, even in the body of Christ, even in the body of Christ, we too struggle with the flesh. We struggle with this present darkness. And if you've lived any time in this life, even as a believer, there are times that the darkness of sin the darkness of temptation, the lust for the material or sexual immorality, or even the darkness of anxiety and despair, it becomes too great. We may feel enveloped and even paralyzed by it. And this is where we see the great light. The great light has come Verse 14, excuse me, verse 15 of Matthew 4 in our text. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness. That's us. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And like those in Galilee, we too, as I've said, dwell in darkness. And indeed, in those times when we experience walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it is by the mercy and the grace of God that he sends his light. Not only to begin to dispel the darkness, but also to announce to, announce to us that the kingdom has come. And this is the announcement of his kingdom coming. He says in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom is near, a kingdom that is righteous, a kingdom that is joyful, a kingdom that is one of peace, a true and everlasting peace. And Jesus is saying it is near Church, it is near, so be prepared for it. Why? Be prepared for it so you can enjoy it in full, so you can enjoy it without that sin that so easily ensnares us, so you can enjoy him knowing that you are being transformed into the image of Jesus. As you read in our call to worship, This kingdom is a kingdom of light, but it's not a created light. It's a good and a truer light that is everlasting because it's God himself. And that is true 
glory. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, from our call to worship, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the Lamb is the lamp is, or its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God gives it light. And listen, church, repentance is the invitation that brings us there. Repentance is the invitation that brings us there. So repentance, what is it? Is it a one-time invitation to get into the kingdom? Or is it something that we as believers, as children of the king, we do habitually? The answer is both. The word repent in the Greek, many of you know it, but the word repent in the Greek is metanoeo. Metanoeo. And it means, and here's an old definition for it, but it means a change of mind for the better, heartily to amend or to change with abhorrence. That means an intense hatred of one's past sins. A change of mind for the better and a desire to change with a hatred of the sins we have committed. So yes, there is a point in time that conversion does take place. Many of you guys would know unmistakably when that point in time was. But for others, it's something that may have happened over time. But here's the point. The point is that true repentance occurs when one places their trust, place their confidence, place their faith in who Christ is and what he has done, and to save us from ourselves, from our sin, and from the wrath of God. At the same time, he saves us to God, to God our Father, as ones who are now have a relationship of wholeness, true peace. And listen to this, church. That true peace, as God is our Father, is now our unchanging status before God. It does not change. And we now are, and we forever will be, children of the light. This repentance, this changing of the mind, affecting our whole being, is now the disposition of the believer. That's kind of our, our disposition now. We, we, uh, we hear Jesus himself saying to us as he instructs us to pray, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. As we also have forgiven our debtors, those who sinned against us. And Jesus, in the very same passage in Revelation 3, when he calls us out for our pride of self-sufficiency, and he sharply rebukes us, he says this, those whom I love, those whom I love, I, repro I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. So we have seen the great light. And on us, church, here, Roots Community Church, October 16th, Sunday, on us the light has dawned. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our second part of the passage here, follow the light. Look at verse 18. We see something rather ordinary. 
verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, so Jesus is not walking on the Sea of Galilee yet. He's walking along the shore. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, interestingly, interestingly, there were two sets of brothers, but there was one call. One call between each of them, and the call is plain and direct. Follow me. And here's where it gets interesting. When you think about it, they're obviously fishermen, and that seems to be a rather common vocation by a large lakeside. But perhaps that very livelihood that helped prepare them that very livelihood helped prepare them for the work of ministry. In other words, here's what I'm saying. That, that Christ who calls, it's Christ who creates, and Christ redeems, and Christ equips. So in this case, he's making them fishers of men. So commentator Michael Green, he's helpful here. He says this. As fishermen, they would need, quote, perseverance, patience, and flexibility. As they would need different nets for different types of fish and fishing conditions. And then he goes on to allude that they would need to be obtrusive so as not to scare the fish away. And they would have a sense of timing. A sense of timing. Pray for that wisdom for timing. But they would need these same qualities in different ministry applications, in serving all kinds of people, in all kinds of situations. So here's something we have confidence in. As Christ calls, he redeems, he creates, and he equips. Now, Secondly, there's a cost associated with following Christ. The cost may not always be economic, although in this case it most certainly was. But Jesus himself said to the crowds, he said the cost of following him meant losing family. The cost of following him meant losing the promise of things in this life. The cost of following him meant losing career choices and bearing your own cross, indeed losing your own life. But the rewards, though not measured in terms of what is quantifiable here and now, the rewards will certainly be given in the new kingdom. And although time does not permit me to go into more background, as this was most likely not the first time that the disciples saw and interacted with Jesus, the point here is that they knew him, they heard him, and they were willing to give up all to follow him. And they did so without hesitation. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So we take a look now at our third section, our final section here, the power of the light in verse 23. And in this final section, here is a description where the great light and the manifestations of darkness collide. 
And it's here that we see the power of that great light overcome the darkness with some of the greatest displays of compassion, among the greatest displays of mercy through the healing hand of Emmanuel, God with us. And most importantly, church, this power is unleashed by the very thing that sustained Jesus in the wilderness, the very word of God. It's the preaching of his good news of the kingdom. It's the great doctrines of God being faithfully and accurately taught. And it's because it's only through the gospel that we receive everlasting healing. It is by his stripes, Christ on the cross, that we are healed. There's no other way we can be healed spiritually other than through what Christ has done for us. Notice in verse 23, there's a certain order here that presents the amazing acts of the king. He went through all of Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In verse 24, he says, So his fame spread throughout all Assyria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptic and paralytics, and he healed them. Before we move on, I don't want us to miss the first part of verse 24. So his fame, his fame spread throughout all Syria. It's his fame. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not Roots Community Church. I suppose our mission statement helps with that. We celebrate the glory of God by lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second, the moment we stop preaching the gospel, the moment we stop making the name of Jesus famous, is the moment that the elders should be booted out. Or it's the moment you leave this church. Because the reality is God will not share his glory with anyone. Now despite all the good resulting from Jesus' healing and his fame increasing, there was controversy. And there will be continuing controversy. Because Jesus' healing was debated throughout his ministry. Was it authentic? Or was it the magic conjured up by false healers and prophets of the past? Was it from heaven or was it from Satan? There was also controversy in Christ forgiving sin. Later on in Matthew, it says, how do we know if sins are truly forgiven when Jesus was challenged later on? And it was then that Christ in his grace demonstrated his power to forgive by his power to heal. Again, These acts of compassion, these acts of mercy, this healing of all kinds of illnesses, both physical and spiritual, including demon expulsion. This is a validation of who Christ was, a coming king who is coming and calling all to repent so that they can enter into his coming kingdom. And listen, church, what we just read is an exercise of his power to heal, and it was a display that his dominion, the dominion excuse me, the dominion of darkness was no match for the dominion of light. 
verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. His intentionally localized start of ministry was now gaining momentum and popularity. And those in the power base of Jerusalem, those beyond the Jordan, the Jews and the Gentiles, the rich and the poor, and everyone in between are now being exposed to the realities of the coming kingdom and its king by the proclamation of the good news, the call to repent, and through the healing hand of Christ the king. And as we move on to the Sermon on the Mount next week, we're going to see that the very thing, as I mentioned, that sustained Christ in the wilderness is the very thing that he preaches in preparing us for the kingdom of God, his word. So I'll end with this last observation. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, you recall that Matthew wants us to see one thing about Jesus that is unmistakable about him. And it's to this one thing we are to respond. From the dawning of the great light to the call to follow the light to the power of the light through the gospel proclamation and healing, one thing Matthew makes clear, the authority of Jesus. His authority. His revealing for all to see, including to us this morning, is that Jesus is king. And in his kingdom, there's neither allegiance, there's either allegiance or there's rebellion. Church, there's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. To not decide is a decision in and of itself. Like Jesus in calling his disciples, the calling is clear. Repent and follow me. But he's not going to force the decision. He will not force you to decide. It's a choice you have to make. In his sovereignty, we are responsible for those we choose to follow. We are responsible. And I want us to see the lament of Christ. I want us to see the heart of Christ here as he cries out to Jerusalem. Later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often, how often, hear that church, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And here's some of the most tragic words to hear. And you were not willing. You were not willing. Listen to the very same heart of God in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verse 32. God says this, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. The things we long for, 
the things we long for in satisfying our soul, the cravings we have for contentment and joy not found in the here and now. To us who feel outcast and rejected, the acceptance and belonging we desire and need. The peace that comes when our grieved and agitated soul is forgiven. All of these, all of these are found in Christ in the offer of himself. Listen to Jesus as he commissions Paul the Apostle. Acts 26, verse 17. I, Jesus, am delivering you, Paul, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And listen that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Christ's call to us to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from darkness to light. Are you willing? Before we pray, let's spend some time in silence, let's take time to meditate. Let's reflect upon God's word. Father in heaven, you are not willing that any should perish, but come to you and repent and have eternal life, to believe and trust that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, Lord, if we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts, but turn and live Please, Lord, in your mercy and grace, grant repentance in this place to those you are calling to yourself and restore unto us the joy of your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.